Welcome back to more of the Harris Happening here on the Mighty 790 KFGO and KFGO.com. When I was a little boy, I remember back in first grade, the the girls came back uh, after summer vacation and they had all these trading cards. And I said, they're getting into baseball cards? No, they were Beatles trading cards. And the Beatles phenomenon has lived ever since. And uh, there is a brand new book out called And in the End. It's called uh, The Last Days of the Beatles. It's by Ken McNabb, uh, a Beatle aficionado. And I say that uh, a very... Uh, 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 I was going to say lovingly, Ken, but I was going to say it's a, it's a true story. You you you're a huge Beatles fan, and uh, you've written a couple of books about them, I believe. And uh, you joins us right now from is it Glasgow, Scotland? It is indeed Glasgow, Scotland. Bob, how are you? I'm glad to be here. Well, thank you so much for joining us. You know, people think they know everything about the Beatles, but you have some very revealing uh, stuff that maybe some folks had not heard of. First of all, where did you get the idea? And tell me a little bit about the research. Well, first of all, the idea came because, um, you know, I, I, I'm a huge Beatles fan, and, and you had to bring some passion to the project. I've already done a I'd done one or two books in the past. Um, my problem was that I, I liked the idea of doing something about 1969, which was really the last year as a functioning band. Um, and and I was aware that the 50th anniversary of all those different things that took place throughout that year was approaching. So I, I, I approached it with that mindset, Bob, which was to use 1969 as an anniversary hook to try and write a book and and the concept behind it was to write it as a month by month narrative chronicling all the different things that took place in that year but much more importantly bob and th- and this is crucial really was the idea was to try and bring something new to the table this is the most written about band in history the you know and 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 i had to ask myself the question does the world need another book about the beatles well i thought if if i could bring some context and perspective to the whole story. I mean, as well as loving the, mu- the music of the band, I've always been fascinated by the story of the band, you know, how these four guys came together to form, how the stars all fell into alignment to form this magical constellation. And the fact that we are still talking about them 50 years down the line from after they broke up should tell us something about their enduring popularity. <laughs> but I wanted to bring something new to the table and the only way to do that was to try and speak to people who were in their orbit at that time, whether it be professionally or personally, to try and bring some authenticity and some credibility to the project. So that was the, that was the overriding aim because I wanted people, if, if they wanted to read something new about the Beatles, you had to present something that hadn't been heard of before. And that meant having to become a bit of a rock and roll detective, really, Bob, you know, you, and, 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 and approaching it with that mindset to try and delve under all the sediment of history and try and tease out new stories that people hadn't heard before. Can you, can you let the folks know, what was the pebble that started the whole uh, way towards a breakup? What was that little thing that, or maybe it wasn't such a little thing, but what was the thing that actually started uh, that they're going to say, you know, this band is going to break up? Yeah, it's a good question, Bob, and, and it's one of it's, it's probably the most uh, the most enduring question in rock and roll history. Why did the Beatles break up? I, I, there, are, there is no one single answer to all that. 
It's a myriad of circumstances. Uh, that there's not one single factor behind the breakup of the Beatles. I mean, history would like to point the finger at one or two individuals and play the blame game. Yoko Ono, for one, always is uh, you know singled out as as a as a key factor. Uh, if it wasn't when if it wasn't for Yoko, then Yoko being with John and John and Paul wouldn't have had this fallout. Uh, Paul was with Linda. The two women didn't get on. There were business difficulties in the background. Um, but I, I've been very careful, Bob, not to apportion blame. And the reason is this, because people must remember that these guys in 1969 were still very young men in their 20s. And they had been mushroom growing inside a beetle hothouse for the best part of 10 years for the bit, and, and certainly seven years as being world famous icons. So it's, it's, it's inevitable. And it's only natural that at a certain point in people's lives, they don't always hang out with the same guys from school. You know, their their lives veer off in different directions. They make new attachments. They, they develop new interests. So it's, it's only natural that even within a band, there's a certain evolution takes place. And they begin to think about stepping outside of that beetle bubble and developing their own lives. And, and to... To a large extent, that's what happened in 1969. Really, you know, they, by, by the time they released Abbey Road, which is the last album that they actually recorded, by the time they reached Abbey Road, Bob, it really is the end of the road. Uh, and, and in a lot of ways, I'm, I'm quite grateful for that, that they didn't, they didn't hang on and become, you know, a bit like the Stones or the Eagles, so they become their own tribute band. So in a sense, I'm quite glad about that. But there's a whole, you know... There's a whole range of circumstances behind why they why they broke up, but at the end of the day, uh, I think it was inevitable that. I mean, in many ways, I'm amazed that they, they lasted as long as they did, and and by lasting as long as they did, they left this incredible body of work, which even now down the line uh, we're still enjoying. You know, they have by doing so, they've become rock and roll's greatest legacy band, and also rock and roll's greatest influencers. Uh, so I'm glad that they stepped off the page when they did. Yeah, you know, that's interesting you say that because, uh, the, you know, they were just youngsters, uh, in, you know, in their early 20s. And that's probably one of the things that really was causing some kind of problems because towards the end, uh, you know, the business management, as we hear from a lot of old rock and rollers, uh, the business guys were taking the money and the performers were not getting all that much. And I know there was a big squabble between uh, Alan Klein and, uh, and uh, the three of the Beatles, and I think it was one of the Eastmans uh, uh, that was wanted to take over the uh, finances of the band. And that was also one of the things that was kind of a cog in that wheel, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, as I say, it's important. If you can imagine, Bob, a Venn diagram, and in the middle of that Venn diagram are the four Beatles, John Lennon, Paul McCartney, George Harrison, Ringo Starr, and shooting off in all these different directions are other diagrams, uh, such as problems with their company, Apple, uh, they were running out of money because they were spending more than they were bringing in. Um, there were you know, personal conflicts between John and Paul over their personal lives, really, and there were musical differences. But in the background um, uh, and, and looming up you know, like a very dark shadow behind them was the, was the man that I call the, the demon king of the Beatles story, which is Alan Klein. And to 
put it in context for people who might not be aware of exactly who he was, Alan Klein was at that time the manager of the Rolling Stones. But he had a lifetime ambition to manage the Beatles as well. The Beatles had been without a manager since the death of Brian Epstein in 1967, and it left a huge hole in their professional lives and their business lives. Uh, And they decided to set up their own company called Apple, and they decided to run it themselves. But unfortunately, these guys were musicians. They were not business guys. And when the company started losing money, they needed somebody to come in and run the railroad. And so they went through various options, and one of those one of those options uh, was Alan Klein, who was much favoured by John Lennon, George Harrison, and Ringo Starr. He was very much their kind of guy, bit of a hustler, underdog, you know, didn't suffer fools gladly, swore like a trooper. In the other corner, mm-hmm. you had Paul McCartney, who loathed Klein from the start. You know, as far as as far as uh, as far as McCartney was concerned. He was nothing more than a, a two-bit snake oil salesman and wanted nothing to do with him. McCartney instead wanted to wanted the band to consider his what would be his prospective in-laws, which was Linda McCartney's parents, uh, her father Lee Eastman and her brother John Eastman, who were extremely successful New York entertainment lawyers. So you have this terrible schism between, in a business sense between McCartney in one corner and the other three in the other corner. And it did lead to some very, very difficult business confrontations between them. Uh, I mean, I said earlier on, I'm not keen on apportioning blame, but um, when you look at Alan Klein's involvement with the Beatles, I think that there's a compelling argument to be made for that to be one of the significant difficulties in the relationship, which probably accelerated the end of the band and, and history has told us over time that perhaps Paul McCartney's instincts about Alan Klein were correct. Ken McNabb is our special guest tonight here on KFGO, The Last Day of the Beatles. The book is called And in the End, and it's, uh, it was just released. It's, uh, and we'll tell you how to get the book here in just a little bit. There's so many things in this book, uh, Ken. I've, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bounce around quite a bit. But, you know, something back in 1969 happened that it w- would never in, this, in our day of journalism and social media happen again. There was a journalist by the name of Ray Connolly who got the scoop from John Lennon, that they were going to break up, and he kept it quiet. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, I mean, it's one of those, it's one of those uh, moments as a journalist. You think, well, you know, you're, you're sitting on this information, um, you know, to again bring some context to it all. Um, Bob, you know, people think that Paul McCartney was the one who walked out in the Beatles bus, which is it's not correct. John Lennon really left the Beatles in September 1969, but he agreed to stick to, if you like, a kind of Beatles omerta. He agreed not to say anything. And as a result of that, and he did stick to his side of the bargain, uh, which is the most unlike John, because at that time, you know, he's going through his peace, his political activism to, for the end of the Vietnam War. He's a very high-profile individual uh, and was doing dozens of interviews a day, but not once did he actually tell anybody that he had left the Beatles, which would have been an enormous story at the time. Um, I mean, there were a few hints between the lines, but nobody actually seemed to bite on it. Um, 
And in, in, in late 1969, Ray Connolly was a journalist with the London Evening Standard who had a foot in both camps. Very important. He was friendly with Lenin and he was friendly with McCartney. And he was very careful not to diss either of them because the doors would automatically shut in your face. So Lenin in Canada, um, he was in Canada at the time and Ray Connolly came out to see him. And the first thing he said to Connolly when he came was, I've got something to tell you, I've left the Beatles. And then, of course, he follows up <laughs> with the mouth-watering statement, but you can't tell anybody. So Connolly, staying true to his journalistic ethics, doesn't tell anybody. And then five months down the line, Paul McCartney announces to the world that he has left the Beatles, uses that announcement to sell his first solo record, and... Lennon was incandescent and, and, and then approached Ray Connolly and berated him for not releasing the story early. And of course, Ray sheepishly and quite rightly says, well, hang on, you told me not to. So he was caught, he was literally caught between two stools, between the devil and the deep blue sea. And, you know, having spoken to Ray, um, you know, it's one of the big regrets of his life that he didn't actually act on his impulses and print the story. But at the same time, he felt a loyalty to Lenin, so he kept his mouth shut. It's very funny you use that term because one of my favorite songs off of George Harrison's solo brainwashed album is Devil in the Deep Blue Sea. <laughs> when you use that term. <laughs> great record. Great record. Yeah. Uh, great record. There's a, there, there was also something I wanted to ask you about, and I don't know if you want to tell it or let the folks you know read the book. But uh, you had a gentleman by the name of Andre Perry in here as well. He's a music uh, engineer from Canada, and he reveals a great big secret to you concerning Give Peace a Chance. Do you want to, you want to tell that story or give the folks a hint before they yeah, buy the book? I, I'm more than happy. Andre was one of a number of people, again, where you, know, you, you spoke to them, and all of a sudden a, a new story would unfold. And, and as a fan and as somebody who's read an awful lot about the band, when you hear these nuggets, you... You can't help but your jaw nearly hits the floor. With 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 Andre Perry, the situation was that, you know, for people who may be unaware of it, that John Lennon recorded the song Give Peace a Chance in a hotel bedroom in Montreal in June nineteen sixty nine. And most people will be familiar with the song. Uh, probably it's more of a rap Bob than a song, but you know, it it has developed an awful lot of iconogra- iconography uh certainly with regard to Lenin's political and peace activism. But Andre was charged as a very young engineer from Montreal, uh, from EMI in Montreal to go along to the hotel room and meet this famous musician and record this song. Now, when Andre walks into the hotel room, he's met with this chaotic scene of uh, you know, Hare Krishna devotees chanting and ringing their bells. Uh, the Smothers Brothers were there. Uh, Allen Ginsberg was there. I mean, it was it was very 1969, very hippie-ish, very loose. Uh, so Andre set up his equipment and duly taped the song. And I'm sure that most people have seen the, the video of it and heard the song. But when he went back home or went back to his studio to play the tapes, the only thing he could hear on the tape was Lennon's vocal and Lennon's guitar. All the backing vocals were muffled and could hardly be could hardly be heard. So Andre took drastic action, that's what I'll say. Andre took radical and drastic action to rescue this track 
and it's only through his efforts that the track appeared as it, as history has has allowed us to hear it. But I think people, if they buy the book, they might be very surprised to hear uh, what Andre Perry did to that song uh, for it to be <laughs> preserved for posterity. And all those people who were in that room at the time who have over the years dined out on the story that they were singing on Give Peace a Chance, well, Andre's, Andre's, uh, Andre's story sheds another a different light on that, shall we say. Uh, pretty neat. Awfully neat. Uh, before we let you go here, I have to ask you a quick question. Uh, I, I know we talked about Yoko, and I'm not going to put any blame on anybody as well, but you know, for most of us, her performance is on stage. The, the you know the, the shrieking and you know whatever whatever you want to call it, obviously it did not really help. At least in mo- almost everybody's opinion that I have heard, that uh, it really didn't help the music of of John Lennon as far as you know people wanting to hear it. Did did John realize that, or did he just do it? Let her do it because he loved her. I think he did it because he loved her. You know, Yoko Yoko was an avant-garde performance artist. She wasn't a rock singer or, or part of a rock culture. She came from a, a much different field. Um, but John Lennon was hugely attracted by her intellectual um, stance, you know, her views on different things. And, 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 and I think, you know, controversially, she was, she was extremely good for him. Um, but there's no doubt, and, it, and, and it's an unvarnished truth, that you cannot avoid if you talk about the story of the Beatles, that Yoko's presence in the studio created a terrible schism between not just not just John and Paul, but with George and Ringo as well. Um, you know, I mean, if you can imagine yourself in the studio, and the, the studio was for the Beatles their sanctum. That was, you know, where they worked and, and where they they operated as a, a, as, as a single entity. But when George, when John brought Yoko into the studio, it did, it did create a sense of awkwardness, and it created more awkwardness when she started to maybe uh, submit observations on the music. Um, but it was very difficult for Paul McCartney because, on one hand, he's seeing his best friend and his his musical collaborator, you know, now now turning to somebody else. He was being supplanted. Very difficult for him because. He knows at that point that if he confronts John and and says, look, you know, I'd rather you didn't bring Yoko to the studio, then, you know, it's a red, it's a red flag to John Lennon because he would have said, well, if it's a choice between me and her, me and you, uh, between Yoko and you, then I'm sorry, but this is the end of the band. So there's an element of walking on eggshells here. Mm-hmm. In contrast, Bob, George Harrison had no filter. And George, you know, cynicism was hot-wired into George Harrison. And George had no problems calling it like it is. And it caused problems between George George and John as much as, much more than between John and Paul. Um, but, you know, I, I think it, did, it certainly didn't help. For, it didn't make for conducive relations between the members of the band. Um, but as I say, you know, John, John, at one point, John was in love with, you know, Paul, George, and Ringo, and by the ni- time 1969 came came around, he was more in love with Yoko than the rest of the band, and that certainly plays into the overall scenario. But you know, I've tried very hard, Bob, not to um, you know to, to 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 throw some light and shade in the whole thing. The band at that time was on life support, but I think it's important that 
people remember that it always comes back to the music, Bob, and it always comes back to the songs. If we listen to the songs in the last two albums, Let It Be and Abbey Road, you know, they're some of the greatest songs that have ever been written by all of them, you know, not just John Lennon and Paul McCartney, but George Harrison as well. Uh, and I think it's great for us all to remember that uh, even after all this time, that there's well, people, you and I, uh, are still talking about the Beatles and the people, there are still stories out there that people haven't heard. That's very, that's very true. And I was going to say, speaking of the Beatles music, you know, uh, Ken, I think, I think if you play any, if you put down pretty much any Beatles album, I bet you I could sing along the lyrics without looking at a lyric sheet. They were that familiar, that sweet, that melodic, especially in the early days, where you just you sang along and you and you learned the words right then and there. You knew them, you know. And I think that's one thing I, I mean, really it, miss it, about the Beatles music. It is incredible, in a sense. I always think, Bob, that if if somebody came to this came to Earth from another planet, we would greet them with the words "Welcome to Earth, the home of the Beatles." We've got an awful lot of other cool stuff, but it's not as good. <laughs> very good, very good. Ken McNabb, and In the End is the name of the book, The Last Day of the Beatles. I uh, just went on sale uh, August uh, the 18th. Uh, I would imagine there, it's available everywhere online, in favorite bookstores? Yes, it is. It's on Amazon and all the bookstores, um, the ones that are open. <laughs> um, and, <laughs> and, 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 you know, I'm delighted that it's on sale in America. Uh, wasn't expecting it. I'm absolutely indebted to the guys at Macmillan Press and, and Thomas Dunn for allowing this to happen. And, and, and also, you know, the Beatles loved America, Bob. You know, that was the land of milk and honey because, you know, America is, where, is, is the country that gave us rock and roll, gave us Chuck Berry, the Everleys, Elvis, Buddy Holly. And these were the guys that, without whom the Beatles would not have, would not have existed. And, and, and they were very keen. I mean, you all remember Ed Sullivan's show. The Beatles were for, for for the Beatles. America was really the place where it all began, and I know that they had an incredible affection for for America. And 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 you know, obviously Lennon stayed there for most of his life, well, certainly the last ten years of his life. But uh, America very important, and I think it's always been a two way relationship uh, between people who loved the band from America and and the band themselves. So yeah. I'm delighted it's on sale in America, and I just hope people like it. And by the way, folks, we didn't even get to, uh, and I wish we would have, but we didn't even get to uh, the John and Yoko's car accident in Scotland. That's some great reading there. You got a chance to talk with the nurse and, and also the doctor. And there was also, didn't he go on stage, what was it, Toronto? And he was so nervous, John Lennon threw up because he didn't want to get, he didn't know if he wanted to get back on stage again? Yes, that's correct. It was for the <laughs> live piece in Toronto in uh, I think it was around about September 69. Um, and he was on stage with Eric Clapton, Klaus Voorman, and they were they were on a great bill, which included people at the doors, Alice Cooper at the time, I think. Um, and it was really a rock and roll revival thing. Um, and he agreed at a moment's notice. I mean, almost overnight. Again, it's a great... This is what I mean about the story, Bob, you know. As well, we have the music, but when you delve and peel back all the layers. It's a, it's a fantastic story, com- compacted into even the last 12 months. Uh-huh. And, and you know, the guy who was putting on the live piece in Toronto gig phoned up Apple and and got through to Lennon. It's a bit like phoning the Vatican, and all of a sudden the Pope <laughs> picks up the phone. 
<laughs> and, 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 and Lennon speaks on the phone and the guy makes his pitch and says, we're doing this rock and roll revival thing. Would you like to come and maybe MC it, maybe introduce one of the acts? And, and Lennon says, well, I'll be happy to come, but can I bring my band? And of course, the guy thinks he's going to bring the Beatles, but you know. But, so he goes there with a pickup band, which not only included Clapton, Close Newman, but also Alan White, who became the drummer with Yes. And um, and they went out and played, but he was, as you rightly say, so nervous. He hadn't played, he hadn't actually played at a concert venue since August 1966, which was the Beatles' last gig, um, last live gig before they retired from touring. So yeah, it was a it was a big event for him, but uh, but at the end of it, he got such an adrenaline rush. Of course, John, <laughs> being a very impulsive guy, wanted to do <laughs> wanted to do it all the time. Then, <laughs> and by the way, folks, rehearsal was on the plane over <laughs> flying across the pond. That was it. Ken McNabb, thank you yep. so much. I could talk about, and I'm sure you could. We could talk about these guys forever. But uh, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts about your new book. And in the end, the last days of the Beatles, I really appreciate you joining us in Fargo's. Stay safe out there, my friend in Thanks. Scotland. Thanks. It's been great talking to you. Thank you so much, Ken. I really appreciate it. That was a lot of fun. I hope I didn't keep you too long.